Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, Very nice to see you all here again. Uh, I want to thank Joel for that very nice welcome that he gave me a little earlier. And uh, for the prayers, the prayers are very much appreciated. Before I start this evening, I want you to know that the material that we are looking at tonight is so simple that even a child can understand it. Now, you already know the, the name of our topic tonight. It's called, On What Day Did Christians Worship? And you may ask, well, hasn't the church always worshipped on Sunday? Didn't Jesus and his disciples always worship on Sunday? Uh, What about the early Christian church? Didn't it always worship on Sunday? The answer to the aforementioned questions is a resounding no. Think about this. The Sabbath is either a big deal or it's not a big deal. Either the Sabbath is important to God or it's not important to God. Now, only you can decide that for yourself. But to make an educated decision, you cannot make that decision based on a position of, of, of ignorance. You have to ask yourself three very important questions. The first question is, is what does the Bible say regarding the day of worship? So what's the biblical authority regarding the day of worship? Secondly, how individuals, church synods and history have impacted the day of worship? And third, uh, are you open to the Bible truth and follow the example of Jesus Christ? So these are the three questions that people need to be asking themselves and you in particular need to be asking yourself. But remember this, the truth has nothing to fear from what? What have I said in the past? The truth has nothing to fear from investigation. So what we're going to do, as is our custom, we're going to go to the Bible and we're going to allow the Bible to interpret itself here. Now, there are many Christians today who believe that what they label as Christian doctrines are found in the Bible. Now, they don't know where they are in the Bible, but many Christians believe what they experience at church, what they're taught at church is actually found in the Bible. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the first century disciples taught, etc., etc. And it's supported in the Bible. But I want to tell you, and sadly, that is not the case. I want to go to our first text tonight. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. We're looking at verses 19 and 20. We looked at these passages last week, but they're important for us. I want you to notice the words of Jesus here. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, as I said, we looked at these passages last week, but they're important for us because here in these two verses, Jesus Christ gave the disciples their message. He also gave them their direction, their their mission. He says, teach the people, he said, to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, that's very clear, isn't it? 
What Jesus is talking about here is not only what he taught in person, but also what was taught through the Old Testament prophets, the teachers of old from, uh, that he gleaned from the Old Testament passages. So this means that human devising is out of the question here. It means that church synods and ecclesiastical authority has no place when it comes to doctrinal authority in the Bible. There is no place for the traditions of men. There's no place for church councils to decide are we to keep this regardless of what the bible says jesus says here that they are to teach only what he taught that is either in person or by way of the prophets of the old testament human teaching is completely removed from this but sadly after the death of christ then after the death of the disciples themselves, nearing the end of the first century, new ideas, particularly in the second and third century, came flooding into the church. Uh, many teachings that came into the church were with the endeavour to reach the pagans around them. They endeavoured to try and make the Bible, the, the teachings of Christianity, a little more appealing. And while some people may say the motives were good, the reality is that they were not biblical. They cannot be supported in the Bible. And the reality was that you have teachings coming into the Christian church in the second, the third uh, centuries after the time of Christ, which were clothed in the guise of Christianity but they were pagan by another name and it's as simple as that. Let me give you some examples here. As I said teachings flooded into the church after the time of the disciples, after the time of the first century. For example and you might be surprised by what I'm going to share with you now but very quickly you have to understand the prayers for the dead are not found in the Bible. You cannot support that from the scripture. You may be surprised that infant baptism is not in the Bible either. You cannot support infant baptism by scriptural authority. You cannot support the teaching of an eternal suffering fiery hell. That's just not found in the Bible either. And you cannot support the sign of the cross after prayer. These are just the realities of a person who opens their mind to study the scripture and they will discover that there are certain things that are practices, practiced practiced in local congregations that are practiced in denominations that have no biblical support. Of course, there's the other one too, uh, the secret coming of Jesus Christ, that somehow Jesus will come back in secret. We've already studied this subject a week or so ago and we realised that that cannot be the case, but it's throughout Christianity. Why? Because people are not using the Bible as their final authority. But the one the one that strikes most boldly against the government of God is the idea that pervades Christianity today that the Ten Commandments finished at the time of the cross or part of them are no, more, uh, no longer relevant anymore. Have you ever heard that, that some of the commandments we don't worry about anymore or the commandments were finished at the time of the cross? See, what we have to understand when we base our, our Christian life on certain practices, it must be supported by what the Bible actually says. And we know 
that it was never God's intention to set aside the Ten Commandments. In fact, we saw last week that it was God's intention that the Ten Commandments would continue on right up until the end of the time, till Jesus Christ comes back and beyond, because they are the reflection of God's character. The laws of God are a reflection of God's own character. So we'll know that it'll continue on for eternity. But the reality is that many Christian churches today deny the fact that they need to keep the Bible Ten Commandments, despite the evidence found within Holy Writ. We should not forget as well that very, there are many passages, and we looked at many passages, passages last week, but we for, should not forget the ones we also find in the last book of the Bible, in the book of uh, Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, we read this. Here is the what? What does it say there? It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You will remember, as we looked at this package here, this verse here, we saw that God offers a package. See, it's not simply keeping rules to appease an angry God. This text shows us very clearly that God's people have faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation and the keeping of the Ten Commandments are just the outworking of the relationship that they have with God. Now, there are some people who think that the Ten Commandments are just a set of hard, fast rules. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, etc., etc. But as we studied last week, we saw that there is nobody in the entire universe more committed to the welfare of happy relationships more than God. We actually saw that the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God and the last six commandments deal with our relationship with those people around us as well because God wants us to connect and connect well with people around us and also to have a vibrant relationship with Him. So we have the, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationships. Now, when we study the Scripture we actually saw that there are times in the New Testament when men and women actually, well, particularly the men, we read about the men, but we see that men, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they came to Jesus. They tried to trap Jesus, to trick Jesus, to say things or to get him into a bind in order to embarrass him and to humiliate him and to cut the ground from underneath him. And in one part of the Bible in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 22, we read the time when a lawyer who has been encouraged by the Pharisees to come and trap Jesus with some, if you like, judicial wit. But what happens? The man comes to him and he says, Lord, what is the most important of the commandments? Which is the great commandment? And remember how Jesus answered? It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. I love that verse there because it tells us, it says with all your mind. In other words, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. You have to be a thinker to really understand fully Christianity because it's reasonable. It's a reasonable faith. Further to that, in this passage, it says, this is the first and great commandment. So love God with all your heart, mind and soul. And then Jesus also says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two, what? What does it say there? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, 
Jesus didn't dismiss the Ten Commandments when he was challenged by the Pharisee. He didn't do that at all. Jesus didn't elevate one commandment to the neglect of others. Jesus said all the Ten Commandments are important. He didn't minimize one. He didn't minimize nine. He didn't do that at all to the detriment of others. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And some people, Christians, many Christians today think, well, they are two brand new commandments that Jesus has given mankind. A careful reading of the Old Testament shows us that in fact, Jesus was reminding the Jews of something that they had all, they'd already forgotten. Actually, we looked at this passage found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says, and thou shalt love the Lord your God with what? With all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And in Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, you shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but you shall love thy neighbor as what? As thyself. You see, the Ten Commandments are actually summarized in those two commandments that Jesus gave. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind and soul. Let's turn our eyes to the screen here. If you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you're going to keep the first four commandments. You'll keep the first commandment, which says you won't have any other gods before you. You'll keep the second commandment. You won't bow down to images and idols. You'll keep the third commandment. You won't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you'll also keep the fourth commandment. You will remember the Sabbath day. And likewise, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll also keep the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment says, honor your mother and father. You'll keep the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. You'll keep the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the eighth commandment, you will not steal. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll obey the ninth commandment. You will not bear false witness against another. And the tenth commandment, you will also keep, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not covet your neighbor's possessions. So what we see here is that there's nobody more committed, if you like, to relationships than God. On the screen, we see the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the last six commandments deal with our relationship to one another, and it's just as simple and as clear as that. The Ten Commandments begin by protecting and prioritizing and showing us how we can preserve our relationship with God, and then the last six commandments deal with how we can protect and preserve and prioritize our relationships with other people around us as well. The vertical and the horizontal are dealt in the Ten Commandments. They reveal our duty to God, and they also reveal our duty to our neighbor. And it's for this very reason, for this very reason, that every minister of every denomination should be proclaiming loudly and strongly the importance of the Ten Commandments. They should be advocates for the Ten Commandments in order to get the the society's moral compass back on track. But the problem with this, this the time in which we find ourselves is that the ministers give an uncertain sound. 
They're preaching platitudes, pleasing platitudes. And they're, they're presenting a view of a gospel that just deals with social conformity. And this is why the nation, this is why the society, we find ourselves here, even in this marvelous country of Australia, this beautiful city of Melbourne, is in the condition and the situation that it finds itself in with a whole lot of strange laws coming in to our, even our educational system today. Now, what I want to do, our topic tonight is uh, in relation to the day the Christians worshipped in, on, uh, in the first century or thereabouts and after that. Now, I want to begin in answer to this question by going to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2 because our topic is called On What Day Do Christians Worship On? But we want to start. We want to get the testimony of the whole scripture today. We want to know exactly why the reasons are. What's the impetus or impetus for keeping God's Ten Commandments? But is there any special regulations regarding the day of worship? Now, the Bible tells us when God had finished his work in the beginning, he gave mankind a wonderful gift. And we're going to read about that gift right now. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God did what? On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Then it says, and God blessed the what? God blessed the seventh, seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. It says that on the seventh day God rested, he blessed and he sanctified the seventh day. Now let's think about these three phrases here. It says that he rested. Now, when we study the scripture, uh, we, we recognize that God does not tire. In fact, when you go to Psalm 121 or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, it tells us that God never slumbers, that he never sleeps. So God doesn't tire. So the resting of God on the seventh day was merely to give us an example that we should also rest on the seventh day in order for us to be recharged, in order for us to be reinvigorated for the week to come. The Bible also says that God blessed the seventh day as well. The blessing that God placed upon the day is still intact now. Did you realize that? When you have a look at 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 27, it's very clear that when God blesses something, the blessing remains upon it for ever. So the blessing that God placed upon the seventh day is still intact to this very day, which means that when men and women respond to God and they're worshiping on the seventh day, the blessing that God has placed upon them also washes upon those people who are participating in the worship of God on that seventh day. And then it says that God sanctified the day. Now, we have to recognize that when God blesses something and when it's sanctified, it means that the seventh day has become the object of divine favor. Men and women may say, well, we don't worry about the seventh day now. Men and women may say, well, I choose not to do that. Men and women may say, well, my pastor, my priest, my reverend says, we don't worry about any of that old stuff anymore. It's, 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 it's out of date. It's anachronistic these days, don't you know, in this sophisticated society. But the reality is that 
that when God blesses something and God sanctifies something, it means that those things remain on it forever. In fact, the word sanctification here, it just means to set aside for holy use. It has to be the same day because when God sets aside something for holy use, when he sanctifies something, he differentiates between the sacred and the common. And God has said that the seventh day of the week is the day which he has sanctified for special use. So God rested, so God blessed, and he sanctified the seventh day of the week. Now, let's find out what is the seventh day of the week. And we do that by going to the Ten Commandments. But we're going to the fourth commandment now. And this is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. It says, remember the what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, here we have it, the seventh day is the Sabbath. So the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Now the question that somebody might ask at this point in time, well, why? Why should we remember the seventh day of the week? Why should we remember the Sabbath being the seventh day of the week? Well, the answer is given in verse 11 of chapter 20, because it says here, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. You see, the Sabbath reminds us that God is the creator, that we didn't swing down out of the the trees, that we didn't originate or evolve from a little mud puddle and then we we crawled out of the mud puddle and then we evolved into this and we evolved to that and finally we evolved to apes and then into Cro-Magnon man, etc., etc. It's not like that at all. We were made complete, fully developed by the hand of God there in the beginning as described in Genesis chapter chapter 2. But the Bible says here in the start of this, this commandment, it says, remember. Now, all the other commandments begin with thou shalt not, thou shalt not, except the fifth commandment, which begins with honor your mother and your father. But the fourth commandment begins with the word remember. Remember. Why does it start like that? Well, because at that point in time, the Israelites had already forgotten or we're in the process of forgetting. And also we see that God knew and understood that even by those people who claimed to be his loyalist followers, those most closely connected to Jesus Christ, they would either intentionally omit the remembering of the commandment or they would endeavor to overlook the keeping of that commandment. So the Bible begins that commandment or God begins that commandment with the word remember. And we know why, because it's the memorial to God's creative act. All right. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as it says there in the Bible. Jesus remembered the Sabbath day. Did you know that? Jesus, in fact, remembered the Sabbath day and both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul says that we should walk as Jesus walked. In other words, 
Jesus is our example. The Apostle John says the same thing, that we should follow the example of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ also remembered the seventh day. How do we know? Well, by a close study of the New Testament. When we go to Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, this is very important in our study tonight because it tells us that as Jesus' custom was, he went into the synagogue to worship. Now, a custom. What is a custom? Well, a custom is something that you do regularly. So it says that Jesus' custom was something that he did regularly was he went to the synagogue. Stop. What's a synagogue? Well, a synagogue is just a Jewish church. That's all it is. So Jesus went to church when? He went to church on the Sabbath day. We know that Jesus practiced and encouraged the disciples to do the same thing. And in fact, when it comes to the time of, uh, of the crucifixion of Jesus, we see even after the crucifixion, the disciples still continue to keep the seventh day Sabbath. Now, when we remember Easter. When we remember the crucifixion of Jesus, we call that Good Friday. And what about the day when Jesus rose? Okay, we call that Easter Sunday. Now, this is important for us as we examine the uh, historicity and the relevance of the Sabbath to us today. Some people will ask, how do we know what day is the seventh day today? Therefore, because we don't know what day is the seventh day, that the Sabbath's been lost, and now we're just doing what we know to be right, and there's no biblical imperative anymore. But when you study the New Testament, you find that that is actually false, and there is very clear evidence for us to understand and to clearly see that the day that we identify as Saturday today is the seventh day of the week as it was in the time of Jesus, as it was in the time of Moses, as it is today, this very day. For example, I'm going to look at a couple of passages here now and we're looking at Luke, starting at Luke chapter 23. This is the day of Jesus' crucifixion and it says this, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. Now, all it means here, it's not referring to the stepfather of Jesus, Joseph. It's not talking about that. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, has died. This is another man. This is a, a man who was on the Sanhedrin. He was on the council. And it says, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just man. The same had not consented to the council, indeed to them. He was of Arimathea, a what? a city of the Jews. And then it says, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, and he begged the body of Jesus because the body of Jesus was nailed to the cross. And it says there that uh, in verse 53, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone wherein never man before was laid. Verse 54, and that day was the what? It says it was the preparation day and the Sabbath drew on. Let's just press pause for a moment because what we realize here is that the day in which Jesus was crucified was the day before the Sabbath. And we call that day what? 
We call that day Good Friday. Verse 55, And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and they did what? They rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So what are we discovering here? Well, we've discovered that the day that we call Good Friday is the same day that the Bible calls the preparation day. That's the first thing that we've discovered here. Let's keep going on because in verse 54 it says, and that day was the preparation day and the Sabbath drew on. In other words, the the day of Jesus' crucifixion, Good Friday, was the day which preceded the Sabbath day of the Bible. Verse 55, and the women also which came with him from Galilee, followed after him and beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and anointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So we see that Jesus died on the day that we call Good Friday, but the Bible calls it the preparation day because people prepare for the Sabbath on Friday. And then it says in verse 56, and they returned and prepared spices and anointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So we see now after Friday comes the day that we call Saturday. The Bible calls it the what? The Bible calls it the Sabbath day. Now we go to chapter 24 in the book of Luke. It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So this is on the first day of the week. It says that on Good Friday, we call that the preparation, or the Bible calls it preparation day. Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection, is what the Bible identifies as the first day of the week. But it says in verse 2 here, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't they find the body of the Lord Jesus? Because of the resurrection. Jesus had risen on the first day of the week. So what have we discovered? We've discovered that the Bible identifies Friday, Good Friday, as a preparation day. We see that Saturday is the seventh day Sabbath and we see that Sunday is the first day of the week. So Jesus died on the preparation day. He rose on the first day of the week and the day being between the preparation day and also the first day of the week is the day that the Bible identifies as the Sabbath and we call that day today Saturday. And it's just as plain and as simple as that. You see, Jesus never commanded that there was to be a change in the day of worship. In fact, the disciples continued to worship on the seventh day Sabbath after the time of Jesus' death, uh, resurrection and ascension to heaven. And in fact, we've already seen here that the seventh day of the week is the day that we call Saturday. Now, if you go to that world authority, the Merriam-Webster's International Dictionary, it tells us that Saturday is the seventh day of the week. See on the screen here, Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And if we were to ask what day is Sunday, then it tells us the same, that Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, in fact, you can go to many calendars, 
most war calendars have Saturday as the seventh day of the week because it's lining up with the, Bibli- with the uh, dictionary definition of what the seventh day is, Saturday as the seventh day. Now, on most war calendars, you will find that Saturday is the seventh day. There's been a bit of a change in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, also in business diaries, uh, that's certainly not the case in most business diaries. They have Sunday as the seventh day of the week. But typically, most war calendars will still harmonise with the dictionary ver- uh, definition of what the seventh day is being Saturday. So you have to ask yourself, is there any doubt in relation to what the seventh day of the week can be? You, you think about the Jews themselves. Here you have a nation of millions and millions of people, decade after decade, century after century, meticulously ticking off the days of the week. Do you think that they would get the seventh day Sabbath wrong? Really? Do you think they would have it wrong? Do you also think that Jesus would get the day wrong? No, of course he wouldn't. And Jesus wouldn't get the day wrong because it was based on the instruction that God gave Moses there in the book of Exodus. But it goes way back. It goes back to its origins in creation. You see, even if you have the smallest knowledge of the history of the Jews, you will know that they're not ones liable to make a mistake like that, a glaring mistake like that. It's absolutely indefensible to say that the Jews have made a mistake. In fact, you can go to 105 different languages in the world and you can find the word Sabbath or Sabato or Sabbati, whatever. Close variations of the word Sabbath all refer to the seventh day of the week, the day that we call Saturday today. Now, there are some people, of course, who will say, well, I don't keep the Sabbath or I don't keep Saturday because I'm not a Jew. But that's not a reasonable statement of defence, the reason why a person shouldn't keep the Sabbath. Because when you study the script, you actually discover that the Sabbath wasn't made for the Jews. It was made for all mankind. For example, Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, we read this. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the what? Not man for the Sabbath. Now, that's surely a strange way to spell Jew, isn't it? M-A-N. The Sabbath was made for who? The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And then in verse 28, therefore, the Son of Man is what? What does it say there? The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, who's, who is the Son of Man? That's right. It is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. And here in this passage, Jesus says, Therefore the Son of Man, speaking to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what day is the Lord's day? It's the Sabbath day. That is the Lord's day. That's the day of the Lord. So when people say to you, I keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection because it's the Lord's day, well, you can direct them to that passage and many other passages which actually clearly show that Saturday is the Lord's day. The reality is that God never intended that the blessing of the Sabbath be restricted to one ethnicity. God wanted the blessing of the Sabbath to be for every man, woman and child that inhabits planet earth right from the beginning. Now, just before we move away from uh, Mark chapter 2, we need to be clear in our mind that the Sabbath was not made for man. And secondly, Jesus Christ is the what? Jesus Christ is the Lord of 
the Sabbath. Now, it's amazing to me, in all of the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, that not once, not once, not on one occasion, does Jesus actually speak about the change of the day of worship. Not once. And in fact, even more importantly, after his resurrection, during the 40 days that he's with his disciples, he doesn't even allude to, to a change in the day of the, worship, of the day of worship. And you would think that if there was going to be a biblical command, if there was an imperative to keep the, uh, change the day of worship, that Jesus would have used the opportunity after his resurrection. But Jesus was silent on this matter. The Bible tells us that he spoke many things, instructed from the law and the prophets, but he was silent on this matter altogether. And in fact, the disciples after the time of Jesus Christ continued to worship on the seventh day Sabbath. Now, what I want to do is I want to quickly go through the book of Acts. We're going to, we're only going to touch on the book of Acts now, but we're going to look at a couple of things because we have to remember that there are many people within churches today who say that the Ten Commandments finished at the time of the cross, that we no longer have to worry about the Sabbath anymore. But what was the testimony of the disciples what was their example what did they show us that we should do so we're going to go to Acts chapter 13 here this is our first passage this was written around 45 AD now when was Jesus crucified Jesus was crucified in 31 AD Jesus died 31 AD what we're reading from here in Acts chapter 13 is the fact that the disciples are worshiping on the Sabbath day 14 years after after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Notice what we said. In Acts chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, it says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue when? What does it say there? On the Sabbath day. And then after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people say on and when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them when it says the next Sabbath and then it says and the next Sabbath day came and the whole city came to hear the word of God now why did it why does it say there that they came on the Sabbath because Saturday was the time of corporal worship. It's the seventh day Sabbath. And so the Bible says here, nearly the whole city came to hear the word of God preached because of the impact that Paul and the like had made. All right, let's continue on now. So we see that the preaching of the disciples testify to the fact that the Sabbath is still in force at least 14 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, verse 13, we read this. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. See, they left the city, the busyness of the city in Philippi for the quiet repose that they could find beside the river there outside of Philippi. But on what day did they do this? They're remembering the Sabbath day. They're getting away from all the hustle and the bustle of the city life there. Let's continue on now. In Acts chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. They came to Thessalonica where was a what? 
a synagogue of the Jews. What's a synagogue? It's just a church. And it says, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So the custom of Paul was if there was a, if there was a group of Jew, Jews that he would find the Jews and he would speak to them about the Messiah. And the reality is that the Sabbath day was the day when the Jews of the city or the Jews of that locale would come together and Peter, uh, Paul, as his custom was, would find the synagogue and then he would exhort them about the Messiah and the fulfilled prophecies, etc., that the Messiah had come. And then we, we, we read in this passage that Paul did that for how many Sabbaths? He did it for three Sabbaths. Let's move on now because we're going right down now to Acts chapter 18. This is about 55, 56 AD in that vicinity there. So this is where are we? This is about 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we see this, we read this. And after these things... Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and he reasoned in the synagogue, how often? Every Sabbath. And he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. What is he persuading the Jews and the Greeks about? He's persuading them about Jesus is the Messiah, that the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled, that Jesus has come back, etc., etc. And that um, uh, was the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in him. But notice these words in verse 4. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So... Bible says there have been 18 months of Sabbath that Paul stayed there and preached. Now that's a lot of Sabbath, isn't there? That's a lot of Sabbath. And obviously if Paul had received instruction from the Lord that the day of worship had had been changed at that time in Corinth, that was the time to tell because he'd been there for a lot of Sabbath. But no, they continued to worship on the Sabbath. And as I said, this is around 23, 24, 25 years after the time of Christ's crucifixion. But we see that the Sabbath is still the preferred day of worship among faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Does that make sense? great. All right. What we're going to do now is we're going to change our tact entirely. And we're going to look at a prophecy that Jesus gave regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is recorded in chapter 24 of uh, the book of Matthew, but, and also in Luke chapter 21. But I'll just add this, that uh, the time in which Jes Christ died was thirty one a d The time in which Jesus gave this prophecy found in in matthew chapter twenty four is in thirty one a d but the destruction of Jerusalem did not happen until seventy a d so this is thirty nine in the fu- years in the future so Jesus is casting his eye his prophetic eye thirty nine years into the future. but what does he say in regard to the temple in Jerusalem? Well, he says this. And when you therefore, this is from verse 15 to 20 we're going to read, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to his house to take anything out of his house. 
Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter, neither when, what does it say there? Neither on the Sabbath day. Jesus says, when you see the desolating armies of Rome surround Jerusalem, He says, don't run back into your homes. Jesus says, if you're on the rooftop, don't go back inside and get your possessions. He says, don't do that. Jesus said, flee for your life. Now, this is happening, or Jesus is speaking in an event which happened 39 years in the future. And in verse 20, Jesus says, pray that your flight not be in winter. Why in winter? Because it's difficult to travel in winter and pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath day. Why? Because on the Sabbath day, the doors, the city gates of Jerusalem were locked closed and nobody could get in and out. So Jesus said, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath day. But what this also tells us that in Jesus' mind, that the Sabbath was still to be kept 39 years after his death. Does that make sense? That's reasonable, isn't it? Jesus never uh, told us that the the Sabbath was going to end at his death. In fact, Jesus still expected followers of his to be keeping the Sabbath even after the destruction of uh, the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus expected the Sabbath to be continued to be kept by his followers after 70 AD. And in fact, When you get to 95 AD, you have the beloved disciple John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been imprisoned by Emperor Domitian. And there he is on that penal penal island. And the Bible says that John was in the spirit. And when he was in the spirit, the Bible says that God gave him the vision of the revelation, which we find in the last book of the Bible today. But notice what John says. He says this, I was in the spirit when? On the Lord's day. Now, what's the Lord's day? That's right. It's the Sabbath day. It's the seventh day of the week. So the seventh day Sabbath is still in force. If the Sabbath, God's own day, is so precious to God, should it not be also precious to you and I, in an age of false gods, of atheistic evolution, of the traditions of men in materialism and a hedonistic society, in uh, libertinism, when we see that the hedonistic compulsions are driving this whole age in which we find ourselves today, the Sabbath is more important than ever. And you know what? The Sabbath is met, needed by men and women, but the reality is it's a demonstration of God's people's loyalty to him by stepping out and by being faithful to him on his on his sabbath day on the seventh day of the week and you know what i have never known anybody to be disadvantaged from keeping the sabbath i've never known anyone and this is not only about one day in preference to another this is about demonstrating our commitment to jesus christ this is about demonstrating our loyalty to jesus christ it reflects our love for jesus christ and our desire to follow jesus christ in a true and open 
way. You remember, we are responding to Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Ours is a loving response because of all that Jesus has done for us. For example, if we were to go to the book of John, we see in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, do what? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, some people say, well, what commandments is he referring to there? But when we look at John chapter 15 and verse 10, Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus says here, if you keep my commandments, you will also keep the commandments that I kept, which are my father's commandments. Therefore, what were the father's commandments? They were the Ten Commandments. And it's just quite clear and as simple as that. The commandments that Jesus kept were his Father's commandments. The Father's commandments are the Ten Commandments as outlined in Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 through to 17. Remember, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments of God. God wrote it by his own finger in, on stone. It was to highlight the perpetuity of God's law, and that includes the seventh day Sabbath as well. He gave them to us to benefit us. He gave us the Ten Commandments so that we would have prosperous and happy lives, and not to disadvantage us, because God knows that when we connect with him in a true and complete way, then what happens is men and women are able to grow. They flourish because the good hand of God has connected with them because of their response from their own very from their own hearts does that make sense so when we connect with the creator the source of every good and perfect gift instead of editing God out of our lives our lives become richer and fuller because we're cooperating with the plans and purposes that God has for our lives I want you to listen to this statement just now as I finish it says this in the judgment Men and women will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie, but because they did not believe the truth, neglecting the opportunity of learning what is truth. Did you get that? Men and women will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie, but because they did not believe the truth, neglecting the opportunity of learning what is truth. Please understand this. In the end... It all depends on the knowledge you had and what you did with the truth. I want to ask you a few questions now. Raise your hand if you understand that the seventh day Sabbath is the day which we identify with as Saturday today. Raise your hands. Okay. God bless you. I see a sea of hands. God bless you all. Now, put your hands down. Thank you for that. Raise your hand now if you believe that Saturday is the Lord's day. Do you believe it's the Lord's day? God bless you all. God bless you. Okay, another question. One last question. Where did we get all this information from? That's right. We got it from the Bible. Everything has come from the Bible. None of the devisings of men, no ecclesiastical councils. All the information we received tonight has come from the Bible. 
Now, next week, our topic is called the Sunday Controversy. Now, with the majority of denominations authorising Sunday as a day of worship, we want to find if there is any biblical instruction in regard to that. Is there a commandment identifying the change of the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday? So that's what we're in search of next week. Now, remember, when you go out tonight to receive your um, free material, you'll receive the study guides and the handouts. If you're watching on the internet, on YouTube, wherever live streaming this uh, presentation, uh, you can go to the address that's on the screen at the moment and we will send out all the material, no matter where you live in the world, free of charge, including uh, the study guides and the handout material as well. All right, so we're finished now and I want to thank you for your attention. You've been a very, very good audience, despite the large numbers of you. I've hardly heard a pin drop tonight and uh, thank you for your kind attention why don't we finish in prayer now as we wrap up father in heaven we want to thank you father for jesus christ our lord and savior we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and father certainly the sabbath day is the day that you want us to worship on and we recognize that and i just pray for those people who may be in the valley of decision regarding following you and being faithful to you i'd ask that you will guide them and bless them all father that they would have the strength the inner resolve to do those things which you want them to do for their benefit in the name of jesus christ i pray amen This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. I'm Casey Butler and I want to tell you a story today from a long time ago, way back in the 1870s. This story happened in an area called Scranton in Pennsylvania in the United States. Now it turns out there are a lot of mines in this area and this story is about an incident from one of the mines. You know, mines can be dangerous places. There, all those big tunnels and the roofs can fall in. Miners go in digging down, and sometimes things happen and people can get trapped down there and even killed. And mines can be, in some ways, just as dangerous today as, as back then. Now, in the story, there was an accident and some men got stuck. But there was something else that happened in this story from which we can learn a powerful lesson. Well, the men were stuck and rescuers around them were frantically trying to do all they could to get the men out. They tried everything possible, every strategy to get out the miners. Now, most of the miners were Germans and all of their families were around and they'd been working hard for a long time now. People were distressed. They were distraught and frantic. 
It was now three days after the accident, and the rescuers were almost ready to give up. Some of them thought, look, it's been three days. What chance is there? These miners are probably not even alive. But they still continued. And the person who witnessed the situation, he noticed a small German girl who was 11 years old, who was just standing watching all that was happening around her. She was pale-faced and frightened. And you could tell that she knew the serious of the situation and everything that was happening. And he watched her closely. And then he noticed her lips beginning to quiver. And suddenly the girl began to sing in, well, at first it was a very faint whisper, but then grew louder and louder as she gained courage. What was she singing? Well... She was singing a well-known hymn that the Germans around her, the German miners, would have known from childhood. It was, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. As her voice was louder as she gained courage, the people heard it and they were amazed, awestruck. Here was this girl singing in such a terrible situation. Well... One by one, the people caught the idea, and they joined her in singing the song. So there were miners and and their, their wives and any other children around. They all started singing and joining in this little girl as she sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, until the whole group of people gathered around the mouth of the mine had joined in the song, and they sang with their whole hearts. What were the words that they were singing? Well, here's part of it. It says, With force of arms we nothing can. Full soon we are ridden. But for us fights the godly man, whom God himself hath bidden. Ask ye his name? Christ Jesus is his name. Well, after they had finished singing, there was a great quiet and hush that filled the people's hearts all around. The whole atmosphere had changed. Where before there was discouragement and despondency and hopelessness, the people resumed their work with fresh vigour. And guess what? In the morning, the joyful cry came out that the men were found alive. Never was a word more in season than that child's hymn. It just transformed the attitude and courage of everyone around and the ultimate result were the men were rescued. Now, what is a lesson we can learn from this? Well, it's probably obvious, but how many of you have been in situations where you're anxious fearful or scared helpless and afraid or you may have been with people who are feeling this way well something we can do in these situations to help us cope and help us 
refocus in our attitude is to sing. It can give our own hearts courage and hope as we look to a power beyond our own. And if we sing out loud, others can hear it too and this will warm their hearts and give them courage as well to face whatever difficulty they're in. So remember this, next time you are faced with a challenging situation, remember that you can sing and this will bring courage. You know, learn learn songs that have deep and meaningful words that, that will be pertinent for a difficult situations so that when you come to them, you can just start singing. And may you and others be blessed as you do this. Bye for now. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.